All right, let me go ahead and uh, pray, and we will begin in Deuteronomy. Lord God, we are um, just so grateful as we think of your uh, tender mercies, your um, refreshing love uh, that you show to us uh, each day. And we pray that we would, as recipients of your grace through your son, that we would um, grow in the image and likeness of Christ and that we would honor and glorify you even this morning as we worship together, uh, but throughout all of our life, that you would be uh, the center of our life, of our uh, joy of our purpose and meaning, and we pray that you would be glorified in all this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Most of our time is really going to be in chapter 5 today. So um, we are beginning today in chapter 5, the second, what they refer to as the second speech or second sermon in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy seems to be made up of three different sermons or speeches, all given by whom? Moses, that's right. And uh, where, where are the people of Israel at this point? Yeah, so they're on the east side of the Jordan. So they have not crossed over into kind of uh, promised land proper. Um, you'll recall they have already received some land to the east though, right? And uh, so we're not actually going to read this, this section, but I, I'm just going to point it out. It's, it's at the end, near the end of chapter 4, verses 41 through 43. What we have happening there is Moses sets aside three cities that are on the east side of the Jordan, so where they're at currently, and it says uh, that the manslayer might flee there. Anyone who kills his neighbor unintentionally without being at enmity with him in time past, he may flee to one of these cities and save his life. Um, So you'll recall that that was something that they were told that they were going to need to do when they went into the land. Now, if that's all new to you and you're like, I don't understand what's going on, that's okay. We're going to get to that later in Deuteronomy. We will rehash the whole city of refuge thing because he's going to give more specific instructions. So why is this here? Well, this is really a transition. We're transitioning between the first sermon and speech into the next one. So so he's kind of gotten done talking. Doug kind of wrapped up that last week with the first sermon. He got kind of wrapped that up. Here, what's happening is there's some action happening and it's very brief, but I think the point is we're, we're there are quick to obey what God had said. And God had already given them land, right? In other words, they're not in the promised land yet, but God did end up giving them land on the east side of the Jordan. So this is a reminder just through action that A, God has in fact given them land already. So God is already going before them, so to speak. Uh, But then B, the people are doing what God said and they're doing it quickly, right? They haven't even moved into the land proper, but they're like, you know what? He said, we got to set up these cities of refuge. We're going to do that now. And so they, where we're at now, they're going to set up the ones on that side of the, the river. Once they move into the land, they'll set up cities of refuge on that side. So I think that's what's going on there. Um, but now we're moving into uh, th- this section. And, and verses 44, we're going to read a little bit out of 44 through 49 in a minute. That's also kind of transition setting up for what's about to happen. But the reason that people say that this is a new sermon is if you look at chapter 5, verse 1, it says, And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Right, So this idea of summoning is the idea that he's calling them together. Well, what does that imply? That at the end of the last speech, well, it seems to be that he finished the last speech, they must have dispersed temporarily, and now he's summoning them back and he's going to begin speaking again, right? Um, That's not really a big deal. I mean, I don't think it does it really matter if he has one speech, three speeches. I mean, not really, right? I mean, but it's just helpful for you to know that, that that's why people say this is the second sermon, second speech. 
And this, this kind of sermon or speech really goes from chap- the end of chapter 4. Really, chapter 5 is when he begins giving the, the, the sermon. But it goes from chapter 4, 5, all the way through about chapter 26. So this is really a pretty big chunk of Deuteronomy. And this, in fact, is kind of the core of the book. Uh, and, and the reason is because what he's going to go through is he's going to go through the stipulations of how the people are supposed to live in the land. This is a new generation about to go in the land. And so he's going to focus in on the law and what it's going to look like for them to live under God's rule in God's place as God's people. That's what he's doing. And so this really is going to be the heart of it. And we could divide this into two sections. Chapter 4, verses 44 through eleven thirty-two, is kind of the, the general or big picture part of the law. He's going to kick it off with the Ten Commandments. We're going to look at that today, which that should not be surprising, right? Because the Ten Commandments are the core of the Old Covenant. So he's going to give that, and he's really going to focus in on the big picture stuff. And then chapters 22 and following, <clears throat> he's going to give more detailed laws, more specific situational type laws, kind of, you know, when this happens or if this happens, then this is how the law would apply, that type of stuff, right? And again, why? Because they're about to go in the land, and they have to obey God and his rule over his place as his people, they have to live as his people. He, it is his kingdom. Um, so that's, that's where we're going. And we're going to see today the foundation of this covenant, this old covenant that he's reiterating for this new generation, which is the Ten Commandments. That's what we're going to look at today. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so I already referred to uh, some of the end of chapter four. Let's talk introduction to this second sermon. That's going to be chapter four, verse 44 through the beginning of chapter five. Uh, all the way through verse 5 of chapter 5. So let's look at the kind of the situation and the topic of this sermon. Look at chapter 4, verse 44. This is the law that Moses set before the people of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules which Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt beyond the Jordan in the valley. So what he's about to, to be discussing is the law that was given initially back at Sinai, and he's about to give it to them again here. So this is not a second law. It's not a um, different law. It's, it's just the same law, but he's preaching it. Okay? He's going to be, be preaching it to them. Um, the word law here does denote teaching in a very general sense. Um, and so he's kind of going to cover all of what God has commanded and, and said that they need to do. Testimony, statutes, ordinances, those are, those are um, um, synonyms, really, in some ways. I mean, there are, there are distinctions. They, there are specific meanings that can be intended. Uh, but for our purposes, really, I mean, I think it's enough to say he's just saying he's going to give them God's law, God's teaching, um, God's judgments. And so that's what he's going to explain. So now look at chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, and we're going to get the introduction to uh, this sermon that he's going to give, which is an introduction really to the Ten Commandments. And so that's where Moses is going to begin his speech. Look at verse 1, and I want you to note the verbs that are used in verse 1, okay? Pay attention to the verbs. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. So what are some of the verbs that were given in this section? Yeah. That's right. Yep. So we, we hear various things like hear. And the idea of hearing does involve engaging your ears and your mind to take in stuff, right? Uh, but it 
really connotes more than that in the sense that it talks about hearing with the idea of you're going to do something about it. That's the way the word gets used. And, and this hero Israel thing gets used a couple times in, in Deuteronomy, right? You guys think of one of the most famous passages in Deuteronomy, right? Deuteronomy 6, what we call the Shema, right? Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And then it goes on and talks about how we pass on the teaching to the next generation, things like that, right? Um, so you're going to get that a couple times. So that's pretty important. So he tells them to hear. Uh, he tells them, what else? Um, learn, right? You shall learn them. So you're going to hear it, you're really going to ingest it, you're going to learn it. Uh, and then what are you supposed to do? The reason is that you may be careful to do them, right? There, there's a, a, an attentiveness that is really focused attention so that they'll do what God has said. That's the goal. So I think in terms of application, one thing we can ask ourselves is what do we do with God's words? How do we treat God's word, right? Do, do we hear it when we hear it preached or when we hear it read or when we do it in family devotions or when we do it on our own? Are, are we hearing it so that we might learn it and that we might do it, right? That should be our attitude. Going into the new covenant doesn't change that attitude towards God's word. There is something new about the new covenant. We're talking about that in a second, but it's still we hear God's word and we are to do God's word. Right? We are to obey what God says. I mean, G uh, Jesus, John 14, 21. Um, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Right? There's a desire to do what God says. So we, we ought to be attentive. And, um, you know, we all have trouble doing that, right? I mean, we need, so we, it's good. Pray, ask God to help us. Right? God, I'm tired today. Help me be attentive to your word so that I might do it. Um, Okay, so let's look at verse 2. Who initiates the covenant? It says, The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. And you'll remember that that is just a synonym for Sinai. So it talks about he made this covenant with them at Sinai. The idea of made a covenant is to cut a covenant, um, probably referring to the fact that there are sacrifices that were made with the covenant. And there's this idea that, remember with, with Mo, um, well, even with Abraham, there's cutting of the animals and all that stuff, right? And he has to walk through them. So this idea that if, if I'm not going to keep this covenant, I deserve what happened to these animals. I deserve to be cut, um, destroyed. Uh, so what is a covenant? Covenant is an official binding agreement or commitment. In this case, it's a set of promises from God to his people, as well as commands that his people must obey. That's what the old covenant is going to entail. God makes these promises He's, he's their God. He has this relationship with them. He's redeemed them. He's going he's gonna to bring them into the land. He's going to care for them. And they are to obey his commands as the good, benevolent king that he is. Right? So that's what we mean when we say covenant. It's this binding commitment, this binding agreement. And, um, and, and notice it says he made it this covenant with us. And then look at verse 3. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us who are, all, who are all of us here alive today. So what's the point of this? The point is not to say the covenant was not made with the generation that received the covenant. Right? He, this is a rhetorical form of speech where he's saying, listen, you might be tempted to think this covenant just applied to those guys back there. That is not the case. He made this covenant just as much with you as he made it with them. Now, there is a reality that there, there are probably some of them alive, actually, that are still alive, that were there back when the covenant was given. Because you remember, uh, all those who were 20 and younger were able to survive and enter the land. So there is a group of them. But I think his point is bigger than that. I think his point is, it, it's just as if God made this covenant with you. Why? God is, is he a, is he a dead God? Is he like a, a human author who writes, who writes, you know, a bunch of laws and then just dies and can't do anything about it? He's a living God, and these are his people, 
right? And so every generation of this is going to be his people. And so this, this covenant is with them. They must keep it. So this makes sense because they're about to enter the land. Remember, Moses is giving them the Ten Commandments, but the point is the context of it is you're about to go in the land. You must obey God, right? You, you must love the Lord your God with everything you have, uh, just like the old um, generation was supposed to, and they didn't, but you should do that as you enter the land. So, um, so he gives this... Um, this reminder to them. And then in verses four and five, he says, the Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord for you were afraid because of the fire and you did not go up into the mountain. And, um, and then it, he's going to go on and he's going to get more into exactly what God said when it comes to the law. But a couple things we need to point out. So this, if we were to go back to Deuteronomy 19, we could read about this, okay? When, he, when he's about to give the law to them. And you'll remember, it's a pretty frightening scene. And he's going to bring this back up later, by the way, at the end of what we're going to look at today, how frightening of a scene it was. And we're going to focus on that part then, when we get there. But it's a pretty frightening scene because you have this holy God communicating out of things like fire and lightning and dark cloud and smoke, all this stuff around the mountain. He's telling them, look, if no one is to come touch the mountain, if an animal touches the mountain, I will, it will die. Because the, my holy law is about to be given from this mountain, right? Um, so he, he's gonna, all that stuff is what's going on. And when it says face to face, the idea there is person to person. In other words, this is a personal thing God has done right? God has, has intimately involved himself so that he person to person communicated this law to you, his people. Now Moses does acknowledge it really comes through him as the mediator. Because you remember the people say, listen, if God keeps talking to us, we're going to die. You go talk to him for us. You be the mediator, which is what God had set Moses up to be. So Moses was able to actually fill that role. Moses does that, right? When you get to the new covenant, we have a better mediator, and we're, if we have time, we'll read about that in uh, Hebrews chapter um, 12. Hebrews chapter 12 talks about that idea. Is it 12? 8? I don't know. Anyway, we'll see. The point is, God gives them his law, and he, um, this is a pretty amazing thing that God would give them his law. So those are the introductory remarks. Uh, that, that's the reminder of this covenant that God, God made a covenant. He made it with his people. In fact, that includes you guys, right? That's what he's saying to the, this generation. It includes you. And now he's going to enter into the Ten Commandment piece where he's going to give them that, okay? So any questions or thoughts so far? Yeah. Um, it seems like I view in the New Testament as the word was singular. Mm-hmm. This seems like it's a plural and the community is responsible like you all. Mm -hmm. And so like there's a commitment to the nation mm -hmm. to doing this as opposed to a commitment to the individual to do the take from it. I don't know. Yeah. Think of it. Yeah, I think I think it's probably both, but you're right. There's a there's a strong community aspect to this because why? They're the nation, the people of God, right? Um in the New Covenant you have a similar thing, right? Each of us are individually responsible in walking with the Lord, but there's also the community. The church is responsible for walking with the Lord. So he'll talk about, you know, the Holy Spirit indwelling you in, in I think it's 1 Corinthians. Uh, at one point he uses a, um, a plural you, y'all, referring to the church. And then another place he'll talk about the Holy Spirit indwells you, singular. Right? So you kind of have a same, similar thing going on. God is always concerned about uh, the community as a whole, his people as a whole, 
which is made up of individuals. Well, so it's interesting, Christianity actually, you, you don't really have the errors that you might fall into in the West with extreme individualism like we have today, but you also don't have the errors of extreme communalism like you may have in the East. You really have a reality that we are individuals responsible to God, but our individual actions are community-based and affect the community as well, and what happens in the community affects the individual. You have, you have all that going on, right? So yeah, that's a good point. I was just wondering uh, about the fathers. Um, is it possible that he's talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Yes, and that is possible. That's, you know, that covenant was made with them. Yes. The covenant, the Mosaic covenant was made with Right. Yes. Covenant. Yeah, so that is possible. And um, my only, so where is it at here? Um, uh, what verse are we in again? But with us, this is three. Um, yes, so... Okay, so I, I agree with you. So I read that, um, I think MacArthur holds that view as well, I think. Um, and I, so I do think that's very, very possible. The only reason I explained it the way I did was because in verse four, he says, the Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, which to me draws us back to the Mosaic covenant, right? Um, but I do think there's a reality. What you're saying is very real too. When he's saying fathers there, it really could be and probably also includes that idea of he made a covenant with Abraham, right? And that would be the father that, that he made it with ultimately. And so, so when you go back to the covenant, you have the Abrahamic covenant, which includes the, the Mosaic covenant is going to be through, the, through this Abrahamic covenant. He's going to call out this people. He's going to make Israel. That's going to have a spe special new, new covenant, but it's still, we call it the old covenant, right? The Mosaic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant doesn't end though. And that's, what, that's going to be Paul's point in uh, Galatians, right? I think it's Galatians where he's going he's to talk about how um, the law given later does not overthrow the Abrahamic covenant, right? Um, and so what gets fulfilled when Christ comes, the Mosaic old covenant gets fulfilled. The Abrahamic covenant continues on through the new covenant, which comes as the spirit is given through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. So yeah, so I think it's a really good point. The way I see it is, is the, there, there's two covenants. The Abrahamic covenant pre, is in Genesis 12 and repeated in 17. It's an eternal, unconditional covenant. Right, yes. It is a, it, in other words, it's analogous to grace. Right. And, and the uh, Mosaic covenant is a covenant of law. Right. And it's reiterated and capitulated in Deuteronomy multiple times, and God adds additional teaching. And he had, in fact, we'll see later that he adds love, the, the, the law of love, That's right. to the, the Mosaic covenant. So he's built Building upon the, the law covenant, and that's conditional. Yes, yeah, so the law covenant is conditional and will be fulfilled in the coming of Christ. Yes, so in fact, we're going to talk about that um, right now. The role of the, of the law in, in the new covenant for the new covenant believer. So when we say New Testament, the idea is really you could think new covenant. That's what the word means, right? It's a covenant. And so when we think Old Testament, we have old covenant, right? Um, and, and so when we look at this, we, we have to remind ourselves that we are not under the old covenant as new covenant believers. So I give you some uh, verses there. We don't, we're not going to have time to look at those right now, but there'd be some good ones to look at on your own. Galatians 3 talks about this idea of um, the old covenant. It was like a tutor. It talks about and all these different things. And it, and it uses the word until several times. This was there until, until, until Christ came. And then it says Christ came uh, when he, when God sent his son, I, forgot, I used the word when, I forgot exactly how it's worded, but it's, it talks about when Jesus was born under the law, born of a woman. So until, until, until when Jesus came, old covenant is now done, right? Um, it served its purpose um, and, and built into it was the fact that it had an expiration date, that it would find fulfillment when Jesus came. 
You can, and you see that when you track through what the prophets are saying, you track through, you know, what's built into the old covenant. So th this isn't like, um, oh, well, you guys ignore part of the Bible. No, we read the Bible the way it's written. There's an old covenant and it will come to an end. And then when you keep reading the Bible, you see when it came to an end, right? When Jesus came. Um, you can look at some other passages. Ephesians 2, Hebrews 8, 13 talks about, um, about how the, uh, the old covenant is obsolete. Um, now, it's still part of God's word and thus it is for our good. Uh, it gives us insight into God's moral character, things like that. But I guess all I'm saying is we have to recognize that when we read the Old Covenant, there is continuity. There's certain things that are continuous between the Old and the New. God doesn't change between the Old and the New, right? His, his moral standard is not going to change. He's not like, well, you know, murder is, is, is wrong here, right here. But there's going to be certain things that would have been morally wrong for the Israelites to do. Because why? Because God had said, I want you to be distinct and this is what it's going to look like. I am your king and this is what you're going to do as my subjects. It'd be wrong for them to disobey that. But if he says all that peace has been fulfilled, it's not wrong for us to do differently, right? So you think of the food laws. It's not wrong for you to eat pork. Would it have been wrong for, for someone under the old covenant to do that? Yes. It's not because the moral standard has changed. It's because the situation in whom the covenant was made to has changed. You have a nation that's going to represent God in everything they do. Right? And all this is intended to picture certain things. We talked about the dietary laws and things like that. I think we went through Leviticus. So if you're wanting to know more about that, you can go back and listen to that. Um, but I just think it's important to realize, so, so when you're going through this, what are some questions we can ask to help us apply it? Because it doesn't, it doesn't directly relate to us in one sense. Although some of it does directly relate to us, right? Um, but how do we, so how do we figure that out? Well, here's a couple questions we can ask. One is, how do I see God's character on display? And then uh, out of that, what remains unchanged and continues into the new covenant? And then I can also ask, and this is where the discontinuity piece comes in, I can ask, how does the coming of Christ and the creation of a new covenant people, not a nation, but a new covenant people, the church, fulfill the laws that I am reading? Are there principles that still apply? So even let's say the, the dietary laws might have been fulfilled, but are there still principles that we get from that that we say, ah, yes, we're still supposed to think about that or, or somehow apply that reality, right? Does that make sense? So, so the idea that we're to be distinct from the world. How do we apply that, right? It doesn't mean we don't eat pork, but there, there's still a, a principle to be gained from that. Um, and, um, you know, you think of the Sabbath. Uh, according to the New Testament, we are clearly not under the Sabbath law. Paul says that very clearly in Colossians. He says it very clearly in Romans. Um, and by the way, that's one of the ten, which is why I'm saying the whole Old Covenant is fulfilled under Christ, including the Ten Commandments. But there's still a principle there, isn't it? Sabbath rest is something God designed even back in creation, so we're even reminded of that. But that may look different, and I think, you know, I mean, some of that's going to, God in his wisdom knew that when he calls a people out of every tribe, tongue, and nation from across the globe, that, that may look different in the, in the way they're going to exercise this idea of Sabbath, but it's not a day necessarily that everyone has to observe. Uh, now, there are, I mean, the book of Hebrews says we have to gather to worship. And when does the church worship? Well, we worship on the day that Jesus rose, the first day of the week. So there's precedent for all that. Um, now, if your conscience tells you you have to observe the Sabbath, and by that you mean a Sunday where you do not do any extra work, you need to do that, right? If that's what your conscience says. But my point is, Paul makes it clear that some will observe that and some will not. We can't impose that on everybody. Okay, so all, all I'm trying to say, say here is we are, th this covenant that we're talking about is fulfilled. That doesn't mean it's not 
valuable and even important and even carrying the authority of God. We just have to read it in its context as we think about how it applies to us, right? As a New Testament believer, a new covenant believer. And so it does apply to us. Um, we just have to do work to think about what it looks like. Plus it's repeated in the, in the New Testament. Right. Yeah, you, you still have the law of love, yeah. the law of Christ, and you have all the other laws in the 10 that do get repeated, right? So this isn't a just antinomianism, right? We, we, we are under the law of Christ now. God is still holy. Um, so we start in the New Testament, and then in light of that, we, we do go back and read the Old Covenant and learn about God's character and learn about what is still abiding. We, we look at the examples, and we learn from that. Um, so, yes, yeah, that's good. Any other thoughts, questions on that? I really like this phrase, how Okay, yeah. I really like that phrase, how does blank fulfill, yeah. Good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we want to see how things were fulfilled. I think did you have your hand up? Got I do some code writing myself. Yeah. For a couple of cities in Florida. And I, I can tell you that with every code that's written, there is an accompanying condition or law that goes with it. Mm. What we're calling just the law. Of the yeah. Planet. Yeah. And, but it doesn't stop there. There's certain results that you get from keeping the law and from not keeping the law. Right. And it seems like in this case, the result from keeping the law was that they would live in the land. Yes, that's right. Be blessed by God. And the the law of faith before that from Abraham is still in effect and overarching that. Yeah. And if people had ears to hear and eyes to see and were believing God, then this law was not a burden to Right. Yes. So it, it's a, that's right. But to the people who did not have those eyes to see, this was a very, is a hard burden for them. Yeah. Yeah. And it had to be fulfilled somewhere. So they would be. Yeah. You know, and it's interesting. If, if we get time, we're going to focus on this later. But uh, near the end of this, uh, chapter five, he says, where's it at? Um, verse 29, oh, that they had such a mind is what, in, that now really uh, the newer ESV is going to say a heart because there's actually no Hebrew word for mind because all that's encompassed in the heart. The heart is the inner person, the, the thinking, the wanting, it's all of that, right? And, and so this, the, this earlier edition of the ESV said mind, it really should be heart. Such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments that it may go well with them and with their descendants forever. And um, one of the things we're going to realize there is that this um, literally, uh, uh, Jim Hamilton points out that literally this is really saying, who will give them a heart that will do this? But even if you don't, didn't like the way he's, he's going literal and you say, oh, no, it really should be worded this way. The implication is they're not going to fully keep it. They need a heart that's going to enable them to fully keep it. Where's all this going? Ezekiel, right? I will put my spirit in you. I will give you a new heart is where this is going to go. We need a new heart to be able to keep it. Um, we need regeneration, ultimately. And so I do think you have individual Israelites are regenerated, right, as they keep this, they keep this law. And like you're saying, Jim, it's not burdensome from that for them, right? But, um, but we, we tend to, uh, apart from regenerating work, we tend to look at anything God says and we would say, well, that's a burden. Who wants to do that, right? Because we want our own way. 
Uh, we want to be king. Okay. Well, let's keep going. Um, so let's look at the law. Oh, before that, verse 6. This is, this is the introduction uh, statement to the law. This is also in Exodus when he gives the law uh, back in Exodus. Verse 6, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So um, the, the preface to all this is a relationship before you get law. It's redemption before you get law. So the, the law is um, different than the Abrahamic covenant because the Abrahamic covenant is unilateral and it's God saying, this is what I'm going to do. The law does require obedience from the people, but we shouldn't read that to think that it's, well, do a bunch of good stuff and then God will be pleased with you and will receive you. They're still going to be received by faith because even here, this was all a gift from God to begin with. You see what I'm saying? He redeemed them, rescued them, and that slavery, it was a real slavery. And for us, it's spiritually, it's going to picture sin and our slavery to sin. We're rescued out of that so that we might walk in God's ways. And that's what you have happening here. It's not just do all this stuff and then you can be my people. He's saying, you're my people, now live like it. Right? And if they don't, yes, they're going to get kicked out of the land because he's like, you're not living like my people. You're not going to be in my place because you don't want to submit to my rule. And that's going to happen to the Israelites. Um, okay. So he sets the scene right there with verse 6. Then he gets into the commandments. So let's look at the commandments here. And we have done a more in-depth uh, look at these earlier back in Exodus so uh, we'll, we'll go through these somewhat quickly, but it's, it's still good to go through them. Verse 7, you shall have no other gods before me. This is the idea of exclusivity. When he says besides me, it's this idea of you exclusively follow me. I am the one true God. So um, this is not, uh, it is true that monotheism is the reality. The point here, though, is more than that. The point here is not just to say, I want you to be philosophically convinced that there is one God. It's actually saying, it's actually practice. It's saying you will live like you believe that I am the one and only God. You will be fully allegiant and faithful to me. That is, that is commandment number one. Faithfulness to God alone. It's not just philosophical assent, it's practical reality. And so that's uh, a call to personal fidelity to the one true God. Um, so in our lives, we can certainly apply this, right? Because this still applies to us. This doesn't change between the covenants. We, we have one God. We are to have full allegiance to him. What gets in the way of that, right? What, what other things do we put in the place of that? It, it may not be what you would think of as a false deity, but we can turn anything into a God, our hearts are idol factories, right? I mean, I can, I can turn a relationship into a God. I can turn money into a God. Any good God-given created thing, I can turn. My heart's very good at turning it into a God and giving allegiance to it above God. Full allegiance goes to God and then everything else is under that umbrella of my allegiance to God. And then it's rightly able to be enjoyed because it's rightly ordered. So that's commandment number one. Commandment number two deals with the idea of not making images to worship. Um, sorry, it's kind of a typo there in your notes, but to worship God through. Uh, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Uh, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. 
So the first commandment is not to have any other gods besides the one true God. So here, I think the point is probably not just making an idol um, of a completely different false god. It's probably more the idea of making an image by which you think you're going to worship the one true God, taking something in creation and saying, ah, this will represent our God, right? We're going to worship this as a representation of God. And, and why is that? Because God is infinite. Yeah, I mean, think about how, how unique Israel is. All the other nations around them, when they have a God, there's something visible. And it's something in the created order. It has to be. What else are they going to make? Right? Well, even if it was angelic, it's still something in the created order. Something that has not had permanent, forever, infinite existence. They're like, man, we, we got to have something in the creation to, to look to as we worship. The Israelites are being told, you will not have any of that physical stuff to bow down to. Don't, don't, don't do that. Because why? Their God is invisible. The one true God is invisible. And he is eternal and he is infinite. And so he cannot be represented by anything in his creation. And so th this makes them very unique. And, um, you know, don't make an image to facilitate worshiping God. That may be the idea, right? Well, it's, it's hard to worship this invisible God. Let's just, we'll make this thing and we'll bow down to it. But we're really worshiping the one true God. This will just help us do that. So you can think of some applications today. Um, you know, I think uh, making the Roman Catholic Church has a bunch of statues that they do not worship they venerate. I don't really know the difference between the word venerate and worship, to be honest. Um, I'm sure there is a technical difference. But my point is in practice, even if you're saying, well, we're worshiping the one true God, if you are in any way bowing yourself before this, this thing, this, I think, would be a clear violation of, of this commandment. And so we need to recognize that it's a statue of a saint, a statue of Jesus, whatever it might be. Uh, visiting iniquity on the children. Talk about that real quick. This is not cross-generational retribution. In other words, it's not saying, listen, the kids are going to pay directly for the sins that their parents committed. In fact, Deuteronomy rules that out. Deuteronomy 24, 16. So if we read that, this that way, we've, we're not reading it the way it's intended to be read because later in the book, it, it tells us that's not what's going on. There's two different possible understandings of this. One is, uh, one commentator points out, four, three to four generations is a typical lifespan. And so what we would say is during the, the life of disobedient elders in the community and parents, that's going to directly affect that entire generation as they're living, right? And we see that in generations all around us, right? We can see that all over uh, human history. Another is that uh, we, we, are, we recognize that a prior generation's disobedience teaches something that will affect the next generation. And that next generation won't be punished for what they did, but they'll be punished for their own imbibing of those things and living out that same ideal that was pictured for them, right? Um, <clears throat> so uh, uh, Craigie points out, he says, such false forms of worshiping the Lord, this idea of making these graven images, uh, inevitably had consequences for future generations. For it meant that children and grandchildren would not be instructed properly concerning the covenant relationship, which was essential to their, li their life and well-being. Notice, though, he does point out that he keeps... Um, it talks about steadfast love to thousands. Um, so we see God's mercy is, is greater, right? E even than the judgment, his mercy is greater. It's put on a greater uh, level here. Um, so, you know, I think a, a practical thing would be to also just remember as uh, each generation has a responsibility in the, in the community for how they steward the community's walk with God. 
right? There, there's a heavier burden on parents and leaders in the community for, for the example they're going to set and the trajectory they're going to set. The next one is honor and respect uh, for the Lord by respecting his name. Verse 11, you shall not take the Lord, sorry, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So don't use God's name in vain. That means the idea, uh, so name refers to God and, and really who he is, thinking about his character and uh, what he would bless or sanction and what he would condemn. Um, to use it in vain then is, can be a couple different things. We, we can fail to respect God's name, uh, obviously by swear words, things like that, right? Just throwing God's name out there as if it doesn't matter. I mean, you know, when you get mad, do you just like throw your mom's name out there because you're just frustrated and you want everyone to know how frustrated you are? That'd be really weird. But people do it with God's name all the time and we just think, well, no big deal. Okay, but, and to make it worse, God is infinite. He's a creator of everything. And so, I mean, we, we, there's a whole host of reasons why this is more significant than using your mom's name in vain, but you get the point. Um, in prayer, if we use his name as if we can control him, and this, this kind of gets lived out uh, to, in some degree. If you think about the, um, the prophets, I was reading in Second Chronicles the other day, Second Chronicles 12, where you have a, a false prophet. You remember Ahab um, is teaming up, I forgot the king in Judah at the time, or Israel at the time. Was Ahab in Judah? Yeah, so he's going to team up with the with the the other king because the kingdom had divided, right? And yeah, so they want to go like fight some war, right? And and then he's like he's like, well, let's let's bring the prophets and see. And Ahab's like, do you really need to bring the prophets, right? And so they bring the prophets, and the prophets like, you're going to win. God's going to give you victory. The Lord is with you, right? And then uh, and then the other king's like, well, isn't there one other prophet? Which is kind of funny that he even knows that there's you know, he, this other, other prophet's uh, reputation must have preceded him. That there's one naysayer among all the prophets, and he's like, I haven't heard from that guy yet. So that guy comes, and you know, anyway, so he and he basically sets the record straight, and he's like, he's like, he's like, yeah, go ahead and do it. And he's like, he's like, are you lying to me? And he's like, no, you can go ahead and do it. God's going to destroy you when you do it, but you can do it, right? Um, and and but my my point is, there's one prophet right before the good prophet who comes up and he makes these like iron horns, and he's like, God's gonna, you're like a bull, and God's gonna push the enemy out like this. And he said he, he uses the Lord's name when he said that. And as I was reading that, I thought that's what it means to use the Lord's name in vain. At least that's one example of it, isn't it? To say the Lord, is, he's got his hand on this. He's going to bless this. This is God's will. Do this when it's not. So how does that apply today? Well, obviously false prophets would fall into that category of using the Lord's name in vain. That's true. Um, I think about uh, liberal churches that do not believe the true gospel using the Lord's name in prayer. He's not going to hear that prayer unless it's a prayer of repentance, Right? Or using the Lord's name to say, God would support abortion. God would support LGBTQ lifestyle. That is using the Lord's name in vain. God has not sanctioned that. In fact, God has said the opposite of that. And to use his name and say, God's character is behind this is a massive affront to God. So we recognize we should not be a people that use the Lord's name in vain. Here's another one. I think... Um, if, if we were to refer to a modern nation as a Christian nation, and by that what we mean is we're putting God's name on that nation, that would be a problem. Now, that doesn't mean we don't want more and more Christians in the nation. That doesn't mean we don't want people who legislate according to true morality and wisdom from God. Right? We want all that. Um, but the people of God is the church. It's not a nation anymore. And there's a distinction there. We have to recognize that. 
So we do have we do have a kingdom of priests. We do have a people who we could call a Christian nation if we're referring to the church as God's people. Now we, we can have if you mean Christian nation, if what you mean is a nation founded on Christian principles, I think that's that's fine. I don't know if that's the best way to phrase it because I'd be scared of using the Lord's name in vain because a nation is not Christian. Right? Individuals um, can be Christians within it. And then the church is actually that nation of God, the kingdom of priests, right? Um, so we have to be careful about that as well. Um, <clears throat> keep the Sabbath holy. So we're not, we're not going to get through all this today, but that's okay. I'm teaching next week, so we'll just pick it back up next week. <clears throat> let's do, let's do um, keep the Sabbath holy, and then um, we'll kind of start to round it out. Verses 12 through 15. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. Okay, you get the idea. Verse 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Okay, so uh, keeping the Sabbath holy. There's a couple things we can note here. Uh, first of all, they are to work. That's that's kind of implied or, I mean, you know, you work, work six days, rest, rest on the seventh. So there's to be work that's to be done. But keeping the Sabbath holy, one commentator said, this is the idea of celebrating Yahweh's accomplishments, celebrating the accomplishments of God. If you think about it, in one sense, at creation, there's a celebration of all that God has done through creation and he rests. There's a, there's a, a, a set apartness to celebrate what he's done in creation. Here, and, and by the way, in Exodus, that's the main thing it points to when it talks about the Sabbath uh, law. Here, the, the, one of the main underpinnings he gives is redemption. For you were slaves and God brought you out of that enslavement. So the idea is you set apart a day to celebrate what Yahweh has done and to rest from your normal daily labors. Um, holy is the idea of it's special, it's set apart to God. Sabbath is the idea of uh, to cease. Um, and so... You get the idea. You, you cease from your normal work to set a day apart to God. So they are to remember that God has redeemed them, that he brought them out of their enslavement, and they are to acknowledge that and rest. And I think we, we too, even though we don't uh, follow the Sabbath commandment to the T with a particular day, and again, I think we have New Testament precedents for saying that, uh, but we still, I think the idea of Sabbath is still built in there. We are to gather to worship. That's true in, in Hebrews, right? Um, God has made us such that we need rest. That hasn't changed. And we still are to celebrate what God has done in creation, in redemption. And we have so much more now that we have the coming of Christ to celebrate. So, um, you know, we ought to be marked with some sort of Sabbath rest, right? And uh, we've we got to figure out how to apply that. Somehow, this has been fulfilled. Uh, and you see this too in the New Testament where it talks about we have this Sabbath rest and, and how Christ fulfills that. And we're also told to keep striving to enter that Sabbath rest. We have all these pictures in Hebrews of what it looks like to apply the Sabbath commandment today. So we should somehow figure out a way to keep the Sabbath, even though it will look a little different. Okay, so that is really where we'll stop today. But are there any thoughts or questions at this point? Yeah. Could you back to uh, the second commandment? Um, yeah. Make, could you speak to the fact that the Israelites, as per God's very instructions, did make images of the ark, the cherubim. However, 
if you look at some Egyptians or parts during yeah. the time, they had winged creatures just like that. However, in the middle, there was a god like Osiris that they would bow down to. Yeah. For the Israelites, there was no god there because they were worshiping the unseen god. Right. So the fact that there were images fashioned, yeah. but they weren't bowing down. In Could you just... Yeah, yeah. So they're, so they're not... That's a good question. So when you think about like the ark and you even have the cherubim that are made over it, you know, that are to be over the ark. So uh, what's what's the difference? Well, one, you, I mean, you mentioned they're not bowing down to it. That's true, right? Number two is what is what is going on with the ark and the cherub, cherubim? Do you know what that is? It's not a representation of God. What is it, a, what is it a, to picture? The mercy seat and his throne, right? This is his footstool is what we're told in other passages. The idea being his throne. And so what do you see on the throne? Nothing. They don't have an image of God sitting on top of that throne and that mercy seat, right? Um, so you still have the invisible God, but this is a reminder that our invisible God rules over all things, right? So I think that's a pretty, pretty big distinction. It's not to represent God. It's just a reminder. God sits on the throne. This is a reminder of God's throne uh, from which he rules over his people, which would have the Ten Commandments in it, right? Things like that. It's the idea of his law has been given to us. So, yeah. Even Solomon's throne had lions right. on each side that they made. So <clears throat> there was a prohibition against carving images. <clears throat> right. What you were doing. Yes, yeah. All, yeah. Furniture, all furniture in the tabernacle was like that. I mean, yeah. Right. It was, it was all just furniture. Yeah, furniture. That's right. Which is still holy because it is set apart for particular use in worship to the one true God, right? Um, yeah. Show you how how things were though. You know the serpent that Moses made, the brass serpent. Yeah. They had to end up destroying that because people started worshiping it. Right. right. Even though it was a good thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we're not against wood carving, and if you make sculptures and stuff, that's okay. All right. This is this is making a graven image to bow down and worship it. Yeah. Um, I just heard recently some people not wanting um, depictions of Jesus in literature, like in kids' books, or have you right. heard that? Is that something? Yes, uh, yeah, I have heard that. Um, yes. I mean, it probably tends to be, I think Presbyterians, some of them tend to feel a little bit more that way. Um, I've so, yeah. never heard that before, and I was like, oh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I, do I have a hand over well, here, and then I'm over. I'm just gonna kind of along those same lines, like the um, you'll see churches with like Jesus on the cross. Right. Um, is that? I mean, that's probably not a good. Thing. Yeah, I would agree. I would say that's not a good thing. Um, Number one, Jesus is not still on the cross. So I think that's a big problem with that, what you're communicating. Uh, number two, I think there's at least a strong temptation to think of that as somehow through this image, I'm able to, to worship Jesus, right? So I don't think it's wrong for us to, to know that Jesus had a body. He was a real human being, right? He's God in human flesh. Um, I don't even know that I would say it's wrong to have you know pictures of Jesus in a, in a children's book or something to, if we're depicting the story of Jesus, but if we start, if it becomes an image by which I'm thinking through this, I'm worshiping God, I think that's where we really start to run into problems. And so we have to be very thoughtful about, is this going to promote that or not? And that may be different for different people, right? I know some people that say, I'm not, I cannot watch or look at anything that has an image of Jesus because I, the temptation would be for me to have that image in my mind as I'm worshiping Jesus. And I think that could be a violation of second commandment. Um, by all means, don't, don't look at, you know, don't include that in what you're reading or what you're looking, you know, TV shows that may depict Jesus. Um, but I don't know that I'm ready to say wholesale, we can't have um, art or images that would tell stories to us about Jesus. Um, I think it becomes distractions to the inner man worship and you're saying yeah. right on the outside. Unless That's right. I'm focused on what's going on on the inside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It becomes more of an external ritual temptation, yeah. 
just to add what Ramsey said, in Roman Catholic or even Anglican churches, you do, they are bowing down right. to yeah, yeah. crucifix. And I think that is just a very uh, risky thing, yeah. trying to worship the unseen God in heaven through this right. cool artifact. Yeah, so, so they even do this with communion, right? This idea that you kneel as you're receiving communion. Because why? Because that's the real body and blood of Jesus is what is being communicated. So there can be this idea of I'm bowing down. Something created bread and wine and I'm going to bow down to it. In now, now I understand not every Roman Catholic is thinking that much through. So I'm not, I'm not prepared to judge every person's heart. Who's, but my point is that's a bad idea, right? On a, on a big picture. Okay, I think I had a question over here maybe. And then... Uh, I don't know, Jeff. We'll see. Well, just how Christians can, can get confused and cross the line. Some of those books that were real popular about people who died and supposedly went to heaven, they saw Jesus. Yeah. They were seeing the same image of Jesus. Yeah. So people would have a dream and realize, oh my goodness, I saw the same image that this person in the book. And so there was a specific one that was going around on the internet okay. that was the real Jesus. The real Jesus. So we know exactly what he looks like now. Yeah. That's good. All right, Jeff. I was just going to say, in some denominations like Lutheran and Anglican and certain others, the uh, the doctrine of the real presence is, is taught in the Lord's Supper, which is, but Luther interpreted not as transubstantiation, but with Christ right. in with and under. Yes. But if you read in 1 Corinthians, Paul emphasizes self-examination. That is always tied in uh, with uh, Zoe communion. It's really a practice that all of us should be doing. Right. It's scriptural. Yes. Now, they, but they use the phrase detecting or discerning the Lord's body. And yes. Blood. Yeah, that's right. That is a scriptural expression, but that self denomination, like I said, do carry that over into a real presence, which right. which, you, which is debatable. Right. Yes, right, right. So there, there is some room to, yeah, that's right. All right. Well, we'll stop here and uh, pick up next week. So let me pray. Father, thank you for this time. We thank you uh, for your words. And uh, we do pray that we'd be a people who um, would have a heart to um, fear you and to obey uh, your words, to, have, to love you and uh, be overwhelmed by your rede redeeming work such that we would delight um, to walk in your ways. We would see how good your ways are for us, um, how they glorify your name. And uh, we pray that we just be a people marked, um, marked out um, special to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.